Hello, and welcome to the St. Mark's Episcopal Church podcast. In the Lions Forum, we are currently walking through the book of Hebrews in our series, Church, The Way to Draw Near. As a companion to this class, we are using the Reverend Charlie Holt's book, Draw Near, which provides daily devotionals focusing on what Hebrews has to say about worship. In this third class, the Reverend Nancy Sulel explores with us the function of priests in the Old Testament and how Jesus is our great high priest. So shall we pray? Heavenly Father, you are our great high priest. You are Lord of everything. You are King of kings. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to come and be with us, to open our hearts and our minds so that we can learn, we can learn about you and about your incredible scripture. I ask this in your most precious name. Amen. If you have a question, just raise your hand. I'm I like interactive, and so I'll probably come a couple questions, I'll say something to you, and then I'm going to repeat what you say because people are listening on the podcast, since we're now podcasting. Thank you, William. I've never been a podcaster before. This is fabulous. So, welcome to all. My Old Testament seminary professor, Dr. Dean Ulrich, was a sort of an Eeyore kind of a guy. He was an Old Testament guy, which was good because he truly was my Old Testament seminary professor. But he had the most wonderful ability to bring to life that first part of the Bible that he said it doesn't get read or preached as much as it should. And I thought when I heard those words at the very beginning of my seminary career, you know what, I'm going to preach the Old Testament regularly. Well, my regularly is about once or twice a year, but because some of the Old Testament can be challenging to preach. But although he loved the Old Testament, he loved Christ more. And he once said that at the beginning of our class, that as you read and study the Old Testament, you will find that wonderful red thread, and I'm assuming red because of the blood of Jesus, in a sense, that will always lead you to Jesus. Indeed, most of his classes would end about how this section or this book that we were studying at the time would look forward to the coming Messiah, who is Jesus Christ, or the redemptive process that would only be made perfect in the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior. He always was able to do that. Uh, And I I have his notes, and I'm grateful for that. Um, And one of those threads was Melchizedek. But first, I want to understand, we need to understand the context by which Abram, and I'm going to use the word, the name Abram, because he's not Abraham yet, but that's who we're talking about. So Abram, as he, um, because he encounters this high priest and king. And it's important that God, to remember that God made a covenant with Abram that really only he could keep, that only God could keep 
to give him land and descendants and to prosper him. But at this stage of the game, Abram, uh, you know, God's promise had not really come to fruition yet. True, Abram has a lot of wealth, but he owns no land. He's still sort of wandering around, sort of faithfully, you know, with obedience wandering around. He is not an empire. He is not a country unto himself. And yet he has to navigate warring kings. That must have been quite, quite the thing to do. And yet God continues to promise that he will protect him from those who seek to do him harm. I really like the way that Charlie Holt summarizes Genesis 14, 8 through 18. In the days of Abram, several kings were fighting amongst themselves. And at the time, Abram and his nephew Lot separated. Everybody remember why? You know, had the sheep, they were all grazing, you know, let's go, okay. All right. Lot moved his tent close to Sodom and Gomorrah. Half of the squabbling kings had joined forces against the other half during the ensuing battles. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled their cities, leaving them vulnerable to attack. Then their enemies ransacked, ransacked these kingless cities and took Lot and all of his possessions during the raid. Well, when Abram heard that Lot had been taken, he rallied his men, and they traveled to rescue Lot. Abram was able to recover all the stolen possessions and brought his nephew Lot and all of his stuff back together with the women and the other people. And Abram then went into the valley of Sheveh. That's the king's valley near Jerusalem. That's important. The land is important. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest most high, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is in Genesis and should be on your, your sheet. Well, have you ever heard of Melchizedek before? That's sort of not uncommon because all of a sudden, you know, the word Old Testament will pop somebody in and will say, this is the king of. But there's some differences here with Melchizedek. You know, scripture tells us that he's both king and high priest. Well, okay, haven't heard that again. Usually you hear just king and usually you have a priest or something associated. But I will say that in the ancient East, it was not uncommon for the kingly and priestly duties to be performed by the same individual. So being king and high priest, and also you could throw in the role of a judge, would be commonplace. In fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls mention traditions about Melchizedek as being a heavenly being who will judge the world. Hmm, hmm, interesting, right? Well, Hebrews 7, 1 through 4, tells us that the name of Melchizedek means 
my king is righteous or a king of righteousness. Salem means that he is the king of peace. Salem is also considered a shortened form of Jerusalem. Think about that. So if he is king of Jerusalem, wasn't it pretty commonplace that he would meet Abram in where? The Valley of the Kings, which is right close by? That's right. So he blesses Abram, and Abram tithes to him. Now, Abram's response to Melchizedek's blessing was to give him a tenth of the spoils. And I will tell you, in all of my research, I found, and this was repeated time and time and time and time again, I really, you know, okay, this is good. But that was the appropriate amount that one would offer a king. It's just what was done. Just what done the accountant in your heart should go pitter-patter because he would have to draw that tenth, you know? However, it is also suggested that Abram's tithe was also a recognition that Melchizedek, priest of the Most High, served the same God as he did, or as in another scroll, perhaps was God himself. Hmm, let that percolate a little bit. Because in truth, we know very little about Melchizedek's reign. We don't know anything about his life. We don't know anything about his death. And that's important because whenever the Old Testament, you know, puts forth a new king, he says he was the son of da-da-da-da-da-da, and he lived da-da. He gives you facts about them. They give you facts, right? There's nothing. You don't have a genealogy here. There's nothing. You don't know where he came. You don't really know. He is called king of Salem, but is that true, the king of Jerusalem? Is that really true? All we know is that he appears to Abram right at this juncture as recorded in Genesis. And there's only one other Old Testament mention of him. And that's in Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you read the first part, did I put that? No, I didn't. The first part of this, the Lord said to my Lord. So you're seeing two, the two gods talking, if you will, whether we may be on the right hand of God, has sworn, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind that you are priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Well, I will tell you that this verse has been considered both in Jewish and Christian faiths in the studies to be prophetic in nature. Uh, except later on when we were drawing really heavy um, lines from Melchizedek to Jesus, that the Jewish uh, education, not the education, the Jewish folk uh, commentators began to go, well, maybe that's not, you know, maybe he really wasn't, you know, a, you know, that a Messiah or something like that. So anyway, but, or prophetic, because that's what they had saw in 110 was this was a prophecy, okay? 
uh, it's suggesting that the priest king, who is the Messiah, will be installed in a new non-Levite priesthood and patterned after that of Melchizedek. We don't know a lot about the priesthood of Melchizedek, do we? And it's here that the Melchizedekian priesthood of Christ is later developed by the author of Hebrews. But it's here that it's introduced. But before we get to this, I thought we ought to take a look at what the Levite priesthood was all about. For if we're to follow that wonderful little red thread of God's grace and the significance of, of Christ as high priest, we need to understand the role of the Old Testament priest. Well, now in Exodus 28, God gives Aaron and his sons, members of the tribe of Levi, special status as high priest. The high priestly family had the highest responsibility and privilege to serve in the holy place and the most holy place of the tabernacle and the temple. You, he, they were the only ones who go, could go there. This was so holy of holy that, in fact, they would tie a rope around the, chief, the high priest's ankle so when he went into the holy of holies to talk with God and he died because he didn't have the proper bells or whatever on him or he just was old age and died, they could pull him out because if they entered, guess what would happen? They die, a pile of bodies. That would not be good. That would not be good. So the high priest family had the highest responsibility and privilege to serve in the holy place and the most holy place of the tabernacle and temple. Their priestly identity was founded not in function, not what they did, though their functions were important, please understand, rather their identity was founded in their lifeblood, in the very essence of their being. And that's where God looked. It's in the very essence of their being. So for the high priest and the Levites alike, holiness, can you imagine the pressure to maintain, you know, holiness? It's, it's, I'm so grateful we have Jesus now. Thank you, God. But I mean, really, it's, it's quite, it was quite a role to be called upon and not something to be taken lightly. Um, Holiness setting apart was the chief distinguishing characteristics, you know, while inner moral purity was also essential. That was also very, very essential. But more instructive of the priestly identity was actually Aaron's garments and anointing. And I have that scripture in your um, little handouts. The color and structure of his garments revealed by God to Moses on Mount Sinai corresponded closely to many elements revealed in the tabernacle design. And this is fascinating. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so that he might serve me as priest. These are garments to be made, a breast piece, an ephod, a robe, 
a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. Now listen to what else is on these wonderful garments. Engrave the names of the sons of Israel on the two stones the way a gem cutter engraves a seal. Then mount the stones in gold filigree settings and fasten them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as a memorial stones for the sons of Israel. Aaron is to bear the names of, on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. You can take a look. If you look in the back page, I've stapled it on. There is a picture, sorry, yours is in black and white, of, uh, of the priestly garments. Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastpiece of decision as a continuing memorial before God. Also put the Urim stone and the Thummim stone on the breastpiece. Anyone know what those stones are out of curiosity? This is why I had so much fun last night. They're actually a stones of white and black, and they have these words on it. They are the stones of decision. And so, Urim essentially means guilty, and that is, what color would you guess? No, it was the white one. It was the white one. Just saying. It was, and then Thurum essentially means innocent. And this would imply that the purpose of Urim and Thummim was was an ordeal to confirm or refute suspected guilt. So whatever they cast forth uh, meant you were, you know, you were judged. So they were judge and jury in this sense. If Urim was selected, it meant guilt, while the selection of Thummim would mean innocence. So they, those, breast stone, those stones were also in the breast base, and they're about so big, Okay. And they are to be over Aaron's heart whenever he enters the presence of the Lord. Thus Aaron will always bear, Aaron or the high priest, will always bear the means of making decisions for the Israelites over his heart before God. A lot of responsibility here, you see. Then they also put gold bells and pomegranates, you know, on the hymns to alternate around the hem of the robe, and Aaron must wear it when he ministers, and the sound of the bells will be heard when he enters the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out, so that he will not die. Now, I love God. He is so wonderfully creative, so wonderfully tactile. He, when we worship, it is truly with all of our senses, not just our minds, but with our ears and our noses and our mouths and our hands, everything. We hear things. You know, we smell incense. You know, it's, we lift up our hands or we pray or whatever. It's wonderfulness. I, God's worship is cool. All right, I digress. Make a plate of pure gold and engrave it on, on it as a seal, holy to the Lord, and it will be on Aaron's forehead, and he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts the Israelites consecrate. And whatever their gifts may be, it will be on Aaron's forehead continually so that they will be acceptable to the Lord. So he's got to wear this plate on his head. 
and then make tunics and sashes and caps for Aaron's son to give them dignity and honor. And after you put these clothes on your brother Aaron and his sons, anoint and ordain them, consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. Well, I'm going to tell you, as you see here, the ephod was basically an apron, and you have a sash that uh, secures the breastplate that has all of the stones on it, and they have stones that, sec that secure uh, the ephod on the shoulders. Then you have linen, just a linen underskirt, if you will. Uh, and then you have a turban, and on that is a plaque that says, you know, God is held. It, you know, it's quite, I think, I don't know that I will ever complain about preaching tabs after this. You know, I, there is so much significance in everything that has to do with worship and sacrifice for our God. And I love those things. You know, today you can certainly say, well, yeah, some of our chasuble means, you know, we are now, it's honored, it's more of a holy thing. Uh, but it isn't to the detail, the wonderful detail and the reasons why that God wants us to wear these things. We don't necessarily have that now. And that has to do with, of course, the coming of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> because this was to be worn for sacrificial and for other occasions. So, Aaron's anointing with oil, which symbolizes the anointing of God's spirit, paralleled the inf infilling of the tabernacle with the glory of God. And thus, it was understood that Aaron, or the high priest, is seen to be a mini-tabernacle. Think about that. A mini tabernacle, a shorthand version of God's dwelling place. So basically, what Aaron and all of this that he was wearing was telling the people is God is dwelling within me. Isn't that interesting? Love it, love it. To remind you of anyone, actually? Functions of the high priest and the Levites were seen in this light, and they reflect the presence and working of God among his people. And when the priests received the sacraments and offerings, they signified God's acceptance of the one offering. And when the priest ate the peace offering with the offerers, he signified God's feasting and fellowship with him. So there's a lot that goes on because Aaron is basically representing God to the people, okay? Everything that he does, whether he accepts it, whether he's feasting with it, means that he's fellowshipping with them, that the priest is actually representing God to his people, that God is with them. But the priest also represented the people to God, and the priest's holiness allowed him, to access, allowed him access to God on behalf of the people so he could go into the Holy of Holies and say prayers and intercessions for the people. So he, it was that both. He not only represented God, but he represented the people as well. And we still do that a little bit today. God's holiness is serious stuff. Serious stuff. In addition, 
the Levitical priests also enforced God's rules as law. The Reverend Charlie Holt notes that this means that the followers of God had a relationship with him centered around duty and lawfulness. So if I do this one thing, then I will be okay with God. If I do that, I'll be okay with God. Does this really denote a relationship that we have today? It doesn't really give us access because it was the priest, right, that they had to go through. So we, they didn't know God the way that we knew God. They knew that they were, if they sinned, they needed to go do this. If they did this, they needed to go that. If they had an abundance of grain, they needed to go that. You know, so there's a lot of different things in there. And they just didn't have the relationship that we have with God now. You know, the temple veil was still there. Another concern is that despite donning clothes with symbols of guilt, judgment, remembrance, and atonement, Aaron and the high priest remained human. Right? We are clergy. William and I, you know, we have been ordained. You know, we, you know, we represent God to you oftentimes, and, and we also prayed for you. I, I have a tendency to think that I represent you to God more than I do the other, but that still there are those who see me that way. And I, I will tell you, that is a heavy, heavy burden to bear, and we always fall short. We always, for sure, because we're human, you know? And so, therefore, the sacrifices before the Lord were destined to always fall short. The law was never meant to save us. It was designed to show us our inadequacies, as Romans 3, 19 through 23 states. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who were under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But apart from the law of righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness will be given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How many of you remember the first time you ever stole something from a store? Let's say from a store. Don't, you don't have to raise your hand. Think about that. Think about how you felt. For me, I felt like all eyes of the world you know, knew what I had done. and I did go back and pay them for the little bit of gum that I stole. But still, even so, I remember, remember, remember those long streams of gum? Yeah, you would buy one, about the five of them would be missing from the bottom. That wasn't me all the time, trust me on that. It was just that one time. <laughs> but anyway. So looking over this Levitical priesthood, I mean, no human being could really truly and completely fulfill the role, right? And as much as Aaron and all the high priests that follow attempted to lean into that role, and as William and I even do today, we are humans and we are inadequate. Some may be better than others, but we are humans 
And these inadequacies throw shade on the Levitical priesthood. Because why would we want a priest who can't really live the, follow you know, God to the nth degree and be as holy as he is? I mean, it just, it's, it's hard to think about that. Well, Hebrews 7.11 goes on to establish, and I'm going to move along real quickly, uh, the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood over that of the Levitical priests. And if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, it in, and indeed the law was given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still a need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron. If one came in the order of Aaron, then that would continue to have, they would die because they're human and they have a finite time on earth. They would die, and so you'd have this after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. It's because no perfection. There would be no remedy of sin that could be attained permanently through the blood of, of sacrificial animals. Permanently. That's an important word. There'd be sacrifice after sacrifice made continuously. Even the prophet Micah pondered over you know, what does the Lord really require as sacrifice? Is it sheep and goats, or is it something else? And Hebrews says it's time for a new high priest, and that is Jesus Christ. Verse 12, when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things were said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe had ever served in the altar. Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. He was from what tribe? What? Judah. That's right. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. He doesn't say, oh, by the way, yeah, there's going to come one priest from no, he doesn't say that. It's all the Levites. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You will never die. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And because of the oath from Psalm 110.4, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, there have been very many priests of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. Levi priests we're talking here. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. And therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He is at the right hand of God. He has God's ear for us. And such a high priest truly meets our need. 
one who is holy, one who is blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Once and for all. For the law appoints his high priest men and all of their weaknesses, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Perfection of the priesthood could only come from Jesus. It could only come from Jesus. He is the perfect high priest being the divine Son of God, who alone possesses sinless perfection, but yet being also human through his incarnation in contrast to the law-ordained or sin-tainted perpetual and numerous sacrifices of the Old Testament priests, Jesus was the sinless offerer of his sinless self once and for all on behalf of all of his people all of those who have come before and all of those who, have, who are to come. And so we have no fear. We have no fear. And we can draw near and gather together and worship our Lord. And we can, without fear, acknowledge our sin to him and receive his forgiveness and remember deep in our souls what our high priest did for us. In worship, we lift up our hearts, we give thanks, we celebrate the memorial of our redemption, we recall Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, and we offer our gifts and ourselves to his service. We partake in bread and wine, the body and blood of Christ, remembering what he did for us. I'm going to, just a little aside about that bod and uh, blood and wine um, that Melchizedek offers Abram and his troops. The Reverend Charlie Holt sees this as leading them in worship, and I'm not sure that that's really taking place here because it was a very common thing for someone to welcome a troop or someone by giving them bread and wine. It was feeding, it was hospitality. And yes, that's table fellowship. And yes, you can draw a line, but I will tell you in my research for this, I could not find that distinction. So I'd like to know where he found it. I love the image. Oh my gosh, my little heart goes pitter-patter. I love the image, you know. However, I'm not sure that that's an actual connection. But it is for us in the sense that what God did, he gave his disciples, broke bread, and gave them wine. So it is for us in, in our communion. He is our true high priest. That red thread of God's grace is woven through the Old Testament. And it always points, always points to our Lord and Savior. I'm going to close with Hebrews 6, and then I have to run. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure, 
It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. That's a high priest's duty, going behind the curtain. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And when he died on the cross, that veil was ripped in two because it was done. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that this teaching was edifying and gave you a better understanding about how Jesus has given us access to his Father as our High Priest. Join us next week as the Reverend Douglas Dupree looks with us at the next section of Hebrews and its emphasis on what the atoning blood of Christ does for us and how we can experience that atonement in our worship each week. God bless you this week.